electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Thursday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with Sarah Eisen, Mike Santoli. Jim and David have the morning off. Futures in a tight range again, but that belies just how much news there is. COVID hospitalizations, seven-week high. Jobless claims tick down again to 1.3 million. Analyst calls on Cisco, Microsoft Square, J.P. Morgan, and a lot more. We'll check in with the Treasury Secretary at the top of the next hour, Mike. But uh, a lot of discussion about how the market's handling this surge in cases a lot better than it did in March and April. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, the market, if you want to talk about it being the index, it certainly is doing that. It's been steady. Uh, naturally, the, the, the most heavily weighted stocks also happen to be the ones that are in the strongest trends. They're covering up for a lot of, I think, softness uh, under the surface. You know, you're not seeing this latest push higher uh, really have the participation of the airlines and all the, the kind of so-called epicenter sectors that now are under a little more question about a stutter step in the reopening process. So I do think the market is trying to be rational about it. It's unclear what would stop these trends. Why would Apple and Microsoft stop going up today when they you know, haven't stopped till now, except the fact that the Nasdaq does look really stretched once again compared to the rest of the market. There does seem to be a little bit uh, of, uh, of frothy speculation happening in some pockets of this market. But that's been the case periodically for the last several weeks, I guess you'd say. Yeah, Baycrest yesterday looking at uh, outperformance, NDX versus SPX. you got to go back 20 years. But as they say, uh, we feel like the boy who cried wolf because they keep yeah. saying this over and over again, and the trend continues. Mm-hmm. Sarah, uh, I'm glad you're with us uh, this morning because so many disparate yeah. opinions from Fed officials, Bostic, Rosengren, um, uh, uh, Barkin, talking about air pockets in the economy, which goes counter to what Bullard told you guys Yesterday afternoon about year-end jobless expectations, here's what he said. I think we're uh, tracking very well right now. Uh, unemployment uh, peaked at 4.7%. Some would say because of misreporting, it was much higher than that. Now it's down at 11.1%. Um, so I think I would say to my fellow economists in the forecasting community, uh, you know, you should take that on board, how volatile this number is. 360 basis points down in just two months. Seems to me like by the end of the year, you can get down to, you know, certainly in single digits and probably into maybe even below 8%, maybe even 7% uh, by the end of the year. All right, 7%, 7% Sarah, is a number we would all take, especially, yeah. yeah. No, it looks a whole lot better than 11%, Carl, to, to your point. It's a pretty optimistic viewpoint. And, and that gets to the market and, and the take on jobless claims today. It's a half glass half full kind of view, uh, not just on the COVID cases, but on the economics. 1.3 million does show that those jobless claims are edging lower. And it's a good real-time read on layoffs because it's a weekly number. It's way off the peak. We were seeing numbers like 6.9 million in the middle of March. 
So moving in the right direction, no question about it. A lot of people also focusing in on the continuing claims number, which shows the number of Americans week to week ongoing on jobless benefits. That number at 18.1. It was better than expected, but it's still a harsh reminder that 18 million people are collecting unemployment benefits and raises the question of what's going to happen when that bonus benefit expires at the end of July. For now, though, the market likes to see it going in the right direction, Mike, which is similar to how they're reading the COVID cases. Even though they are going in the wrong direction, everyone's focused on the mortality rate. And over the last two days, we did see a tick up back up to 800, 900, which is higher than where we've been. But if you look over the 4th of July weekend, those numbers were in the 300s. So they were unusually low. If you still balance out the last few days, the mortality numbers in this country are still averaging around 600. It's worth watching those higher numbers to see if they go up. But for now, the narrative is it's skewing younger. The treatment options and the experience we've gained in this country are better. And that's good enough. Mike, for the market to, yeah. to keep seeing these highs, or at least technology to keep seeing these well, highs, the which thing. is fueling the uh, overall market. It, it's good enough to, to essentially still gravitate toward the areas where it's just not as crucial uh, exactly whether we have all these states reversing, reopening moves. And, you know, 1.3, 1.4 million weekly claims is still an enormous number. I mean, in, in, the, in the general long-term sense of things. So it takes a tremendous amount of hiring this month to try and offset that to get anything like, you know, back under 10 percent in unemployment by the end of the year. So I don't think by any means people are confident in the trajectory, but they're definitely taking comfort in the fact that, okay, claims peaked, they're, they're still going down. We can, we can look at that uh, path and say, well, this seems like other cycles just in this ridiculously exaggerated and compressed time frame. Um, so maybe we can, uh, you know, hope for the best. The bond market not paying a lot of attention, not moving much uh, on all these things. So it's still, uh, I think, kind of a wait and see mode in terms of uh, really the macro story, Carl. Yeah, it's, it's, it's not stopping, though. Uh, 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 quants like Kalanovic over at uh, J.P. Morgan yesterday, Mike, talking about uh, retail investor participation, hedge fund participation. And if th that participation were to get back to historical mean, uh, you're talking about, in their view, another $400 billion worth of buying, which Kalanovic says would get you the, back to record highs. Right. I, I do think I would place a little more weight in the possibility of systematic hedge fund strategies that look at very particular signals, like, for example, the volatility uh, level of the market going back down toward normal. That's literally an input in those processes in terms of how much risk, how much exposure, uh, how much leverage they use. That makes more sense to me than waiting for some kind of normalization of retail flows into the market. By the way, we talked about the great rotation back into equities seven years ago. And the S&P went up 40 percent in 2013. There really was no great rotation back into equities. People stayed involved. The market itself did the reallocation into equities for retail. So I think that's one of those things. Maybe it happens, maybe not. Meantime, The New York Times talking about Robin Hood uh, and, and the, the kind of uh, crazy wild fringe of, of retail speculation with play money that is going on in parallel to most traditional retail investors sitting this one out. I like this stat, Carl, from David Rosenberg of, of, you know, Rosenberg Research has his own shop now. He's been bearish, no secret about it. But he reminds us that 70 percent of the S&P that is not tech is actually lower than it was back in September 2018. So that's money that, that you haven't made. And just how frustrating it is right now for all those value investors who saw a bit of strength 
a few weeks ago, and that's really just faded. The small cap investors that also saw some outperformance, which is also faded, makes you wonder that it, whether if you continue to see strength, if we do get this rotation out of the narrow leadership that we've seen from the big cap tech stocks, what changes that? Or if, if those stocks are due for a violent sort of reversal and correction to the mean. I think that, that's one of the key debates. What happens to the other stocks that are not just your tech, your semis, your stay-at-home yeah. play, cloud plays, which are all just making new highs every single day? Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, it sort of brings to mind a couple of the calls out this morning. Microsoft, Webbush goes to 260 as a street high, and they're talking about, obviously, cloud tailwinds. Uh, but, Mike, on the other hand, there is Square. Cowan cuts to market perform. In their view, 200 uh, percent since mid-March has more than priced in the good news, and they go to 119. So it's, it's interesting. You're beginning to hear maybe on the, on the extreme margin uh, analysts saying, you've made a lot of money in this name. Yeah. Uh, maybe it's time to take some of that exposure off. Well, especially with something like Square, where essentially at this valuation, you have to believe in a very long runway of market share growth. Whereas for Microsoft and for Apple, I think it's a, they're in a different category, which is these are the free cash flow machines that you can rely on. The earnings estimates haven't come down. And so the market is just giving them credit for having some of the very few sources of long-term uh, free cash flows that, they, that we can rely on in the market. And so paying up more for each dollar of that free cash flow is what's going on every single day. Um, it ends at some point. It gets too expensive at some point. You steal from future returns at some point. But while this process goes on, until people get confidence in, in you know, the earnings coming back somewhere else or yields go up, I think that's another uh, potential catalyst, you know, it's hard to say that uh, that that momentum is going to be interrupted anytime soon. Yeah. And, and just to coda on to that, uh, Cisco, another upgrade this morning. Uh, Morgan Stanley goes to overweight. And on that name, uh, Sarah, they say Cisco hasn't been this cheap against the S&P in a decade. Uh, and we use WebEx every morning on our on our morning call. So, uh, I mean, a lot of those structural changes in corporate and consumer behavior continue to provide a lift to some of these names. Right. And actually, we asked Jim Bullard, the Fed president, St. Louis, yesterday, why technology? I mean, we were asking about this disconnect between the markets and the economy and why technology is so hot, why, why a stock like Tesla is up more than 40 percent in five days. And this is where he pointed to the stay at home economy, that the portion of where we're spending our money has just shifted. And the longer it lasts, the more people speculate that it's going to be permanent shifts into Online payments, look at PayPal and Square, even though Square's coming off today on that call. I mean, these are stocks that continue to make new highs. Zoom, Cisco, WebEx, for sure. Cisco hasn't been as strong, but, but that's been a lot of the play in, in a lot of these stocks. Stocks like Trade Desk, Mike, CrowdStrike. Have you seen some of the action? Yeah. I mean, stocks that have tripled since, since March. And I guess it's on the stay-at-home play and the, and the fact that, you know, this is going to be structural in of how we do our work. And that's going to benefit the enterprise cloud companies or anybody that's attached to whether it's ads, tech, uh, ad tech or enterprise cloud. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's obviously everyone can agree on, on the trends. I do think the question is, uh, you know, how long the gold rush is, is going to last. You know, uh, Carl, that same, uh, you know, from Morgan Stanley uh, on that Cisco call, they mentioned the fact that they also have this chief, uh, inf- this CIO study, basically IT officers at companies about their spending plans. 
And they're talking about a pretty good decline in expectations of what they're going to spend this year uh, after many, many years of, uh, of growth. That includes in software. Uh, there's also been these reports that venture capitalists are getting very, very uh, closely scrutinizing their company's investment in cloud. It seems like a very big expense. Not to say the trend is changing, but the market's assuming that this is up and away forever. And these are going to all be these winner-take-most verticals within, uh, within software. And, you know, it's, we, ha- we might have a reckoning ahead of us, but right now, you know, what changes? Just the stories is the question. Yeah. You know, it's not Friday yet, uh, guys, but uh, next week is going to bring a slew of bank earnings. And D.A. Davidson has a bunch of calls out on the banks today. They lift J.P. Morgan. They cut B of A. Uh, but, Mike, I wonder where you think sentiment is right now on financials. I mean, we we've seen some late afternoon declines and then recoveries the following day. But we're going to learn a lot more tomorrow about expectations for loan loss provisions, a story that we were hoping could be contained into one or two quarters, but I don't know. Is that in doubt? Yeah, I think I think sentiment toward the financials is pretty bereft right now. The people have mostly given up on on the idea. They absolutely at times get cheap enough that, you know, just for a, a quick reversion trade, it makes sense. Uh, I think yields are going to determine what happens here right now. Yields plus the, the credit loss picture because it doesn't necessarily seem as if uh, it's just going to be this kind of fleeting hiccup in terms of, uh, in terms of credit losses. Uh, if you look at the, the pure play credit card companies, they're not looking great. Uh, Capital One and Discover and Synchrony and to a lesser degree American Express. So clearly the, the market is, is acknowledging that there's going to be uh, cumulative losses building up uh, on the books here, and that's not a great thing. But you know, how cheap do they have to get before that's, uh, that's accounted for is a big question. A lot of people are gravitating toward the capital markets type names, trading-oriented firms, J.P. Morgan over B of A fits into something like that. Um, but right now, uh, it's getting extreme in terms of the relative performance of financials versus the S&P. In fact, I think it's pretty much back toward the March lows. So, uh, you know, maybe yields, if they can hold in here, can give some support at some point on, on the Treasury side. Yeah, they're down 25 percent as a group for the year. Just as the question of earnings overall, I wonder how much of this earnings season, this quarter that that just passed, is just going to be a throwaway and considered old news because we know that the country was shut down and and what it's going to look like. So right now, you know, the the expectations are for a 44 percent decline in earnings. But if you look at some at least consumer exposed names and Bed Bath and Beyond and Levi are kind of exceptions because both have been doing worse than than your average retailer. But even a Nike, which had doing had been doing better with such a big disappointment, Mike, it does make you wonder just how far apart the analysts are from what's actually happening. I mean, they are they are kind of guessing at this point, not knowing who's bringing in revenue and what it's going to look like and how much of the business is coming from online. Uh, I think that's going to be a key question. And, and then it raises the question of how much you're overpaying, if you are overpaying, for future earnings, given it's so hard to determine valuations right now off zero guidance and off dismal quarters that we're about to see. I would note that Bank of America sees some upside this quarter, saying that the economic reports are coming in a little better than expected, which should help the earnings picture out a lot. But we're bracing for some ugly numbers overall. Right. Definitely ugly numbers. And in some sectors, I think the numbers are going to be a little bit stale because analysts have just decided not to try to be too fine about it. But it seems like a very low bar at this point um, for this quarter anyway. Uh, so you probably are going to see if companies care 
to try and beat. Uh, it's, it, these are low hurdles to try and clear. I don't know how much that's going to matter. The market right now is essentially saying, you know, we're going to give everybody a kitchen sink two or maybe two or three quarters at the most. Uh, and then we're going to assume we can re- lean back on, on longer term earnings estimates. You know, 2022 estimates are kind of meaningless right now, but they've basically not come down uh, hardly at all. Uh, they've certainly come down less than the market went down in March. So if, if you believe the market uh, can kind of uh, use that as a beacon, uh, that's your bull case. But uh, certainly remains to be seen if those numbers can hold up. Yeah. The hall pass earnings quarter. That's yeah. uh, there's no <laughs> doubt about that, Mike. We'll take a break here. As we said, futures uh, continue to be in a tight range. As we said earlier, we'll talk to the Treasury Secretary next hour. Uh, we'll get to some of the Costco numbers, layoffs at Walgreens. What is going on? at Twitter with the subscription model uh, when we come back in a moment. Don't go anywhere. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back. Data on housing rentals out of New York City coming in a lot worse than expected, with the city emptying out fast. Our Robert Frank has the numbers. Robert, good morning. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning. These numbers just out showing the worst June in over a decade for Manhattan rentals as more renters moved out and a lot fewer moved in. The number of new rentals falling 36 percent compared to a year ago. Average prices per square foot down 6 percent. But the big worry here and the big numbers was this rapid rise in empty apartments. The inventory of rental listings soaring 85 percent. We now have a vacancy rate that is the highest in Manhattan on record. Now, landlords are racing to fill all those apartments with discounts and incentives. More, the uh, a, a one bedroom will now cost you $3,400. That is still twice the national average, but a lot more discounts being offered now. Half of all rentals in June came with concessions. And the big declines were in larger, more expensive apartments. Rentals for three bedrooms falling 42%. Brokers say that families that would have typically rented those bigger apartments have a lot of them left for the suburbs either for the summer or we may find out for good. Now, more than two-thirds of New Yorkers rent. It is the largest rental market in the country, so we could see a cascading effect throughout the summer on the big landlords like Blackstone and Related. You also have property taxes are the biggest source of revenue for New York City and, of course, an impact on the broader economy. So these are going to be numbers to watch in June and, more importantly, in July when we finally see the market reopen and brokers are able to show apartments whether that demand is still there. Carl? Yeah, uh, we'll be looking forward to that day, obviously, just to get the market uh, running again. Uh, Robert, amazing numbers uh, for those of us who live in and around New York City. Uh, Robert Frank, when we come back uh, this morning, CNBC's latest hire and a new addition to our fall primetime lineup. Shepard Smith is with us in just under an hour. Don't go anywhere. For more than a decade. Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, 
Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at comcast.com slash project up. You might be right. It's simple, but something you almost never hear in politics today, with each side more concerned about scoring political points than solving problems. I'm Bill Haslam, a Republican. And I'm Phil Bredesen, a Democrat. We're former Tennessee governors, and we invite you to listen to our podcast, You Might Be Right. Join us and guests like Al Gore, Paul Ryan, Judy Woodruff, as we take on important issues facing our country. Listen and subscribe to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee. Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin at the top of the hour will talk about uh, any additional stimulus coming out of Congress. Obviously, that PPP data dump that we got earlier in the week, that's coming up in the next hour. In the meantime, the opening bell is on the other side of this break. China stocks are going to remain in focus this morning. The Journal, Sarah, is up with a piece right now saying that senior executives at TikTok are discussing options like establishing a new HQ for the app outside of China and trying to distance themselves from China. They're citing sources here, but uh, one ramification of the Chinese-U.S. tensions that have accelerated in the past few weeks. And the fact that, that the market is totally brushing it off. Look at Chinese stocks. It's been a huge story this week. Whether it's a retail investing frenzy or a state-sponsored buying with a number of editorials running in China saying buy stocks, you have seen remarkable resilience. You think the market here has been hot? Check out China. It's been going on this big win streak. The Chinese blue, uh, blue chip index, CSI 300, it's actually at a five-year high, Mike Santoli. And, and it's certainly helping the mood and the sentiment. And, and one a number of reasons. I just laid out a few. But one that I heard from Bespoke was that maybe there is some pricing in of President Trump's reelection odds, which have been going down. And the idea that Biden could be softer when it comes to the tensions with China. Though I will note that Biden did put out the economic plan or at least briefed reporters on it ahead of a, a speech in Pennsylvania. It, and there was this idea of buy American. Yeah. bringing more supply chains into America, the, the idea of being tough on China, though it's hard to imagine you'd get someone as tough as President Trump with the, with the constant tweets, with the worries now about Hong Kong and the threats about breaking complete ties with China. So perhaps that's entered into some of the bullishness we've seen in Chinese stocks lately. Yeah, I did see that bespoke uh, parallel being drawn with, with Biden's poll numbers. I mean, there was, all, there was an alternative story out there which said that, you know, perhaps Chinese authorities might prefer uh, President Trump's reelection because he's less likely to join with allies in trying to isolate China and have more of a united front uh, on many uh, issues. So it's unclear to me that that's really what's going on when you, as you mentioned, have the state tell Telling people to buy stocks, uh, and you have this massive uh, upsurge in, uh, in retail activity over there, retail trading activity. It seems like it's all the explanation you need. It's one of the strongest winning streaks you've had since 2007, when China really was kind of in a bubbly environment. So, uh, to me, it does seem as if it's a little bit of, a, way, of a burst of risk taking over there. Don't we have that here? I mean, we have we have the Fed. We also have you know Larry Kudlow coming on. CNBC telling people to buy stocks because they're a bargain. We have a burst of retail trading activity as well. And we had China leading after its coronavirus surge over there in terms of the stock market predicting a V-shaped recovery. It seems like a little bit of, a, of, of not a quite as direct a line to the government in China 
telling people to do this and then having this massive rush of new account openings the next day, which is what seems to have happened over there. So I think it's a little bit of a looser tether maybe over here. But, yeah, there is a there is a side game going on in terms of very, very active small trader uh, speculation. I just don't think it's necessarily tied into the bigger issues. Hey, Mike, Sarah mentions uh, Biden's speech today on the economy, one of his first major economic addresses, uh, a Buy American program worth about $700 billion, uh, more U.S. purchases of U.S. goods, more government uh, R&D that is U.S.-based. But uh, as it's been noted, uh, very little in terms of an progressive agenda, no Green Deal, no Medicare for all. And I wonder um, whether or not that means the market needs to reprice at least some of the expectations that it may have for a Biden win. It's interesting because I don't think the market has necessarily kept those trades on in aggregate where, for example, when Elizabeth Warren was was seen as being a big risk and you, you did see whole sectors maybe compromised by by some of the policies. It seems really like a, uh, you know, let's try not to make a lot of waves electability uh, type economic program more than anything else. So um, it's, it's very tough to see what the market is doing yet in terms of trying to price in election outcomes or policy after that. But uh, it, this particular plan from Biden does not seem like it would, uh, you know, kind of come close to any third rails. Yeah, well, that was Goldman's point earlier in the week, Costin saying that whether it's options, equities or the prediction markets, they all are telling you very different things about uh, their view of what happens in November. There's the opening bell, guys, uh, and a look at the S&P 500 as that fills in today. We'll take a look at, at what leads today. Um, you know, in terms of analyst calls, uh, one that did catch my eye, Sarah, was Peloton. Uh, B of A says that delays mm-hmm. now for a new bike, uh, three to 10 weeks at the very peak of the year was seven to 11 weeks. So their view is that um, <laughs> capacity is coming a bit online. They think Q4 will be a full capacity quarter. They go to 72. And we've seen the price target on Peloton just go from the 40s to the 50s to the 60s and now the 70s. Right. And, and you can see that the gauge is the delays. It just shows how much demand there is and how and how fast they need to get these bikes off and into people's homes as we continue to see the, the semi-lockdown continue. Yes, we've re- reopened, but clearly there's still a lot of people working from home and there's still a lot of gyms in this country that are closed and a lot of states that are still Closing, Carl, Goldman Sachs has a good state-by-state tracker where they show that states representing 40% of the population have started to roll back reopenings in some fashion. So we'll watch the high-frequency data, like the open-table restaurant reservations, which have started to tick down, and whether the market starts to sort of pay attention and recalibrate the economic expectations or whether they just see this as a, as a blip toward the, the broader reopening in this country. But clearly, Peloton is a major beneficiary. By the way, Lulu actually closed that acquisition for Mirror yesterday. So that is official. Peloton competitor workout in front of a mirror in your own home. I, I noted the Regeneron call, which I thought w- was pretty interesting. It got an upgrade to buy from hold, price target up to 750 from 400. Regeneron is one of those star stock stories, not just because they're working on the monoclonal antibodies, but this particular upgrade said that it was being undervalued for its oncology pipeline and sees further upside in the expansion opportunities in oncology. Guys, Regeneron is one of those companies, Mike, where where if you talk to people and ask, why is the market going up? Why is it so resilient? This one is considered, this and Lilly and some of the others working on these antibody cocktails is considered such a hopeful bridge to vaccine. They're in late stage trials. Let's see how they do. 
They, the government has poured this week half a billion dollars in to get the manufacturing up to speed. And the whole idea is to give people antibodies like a vaccine, not like a vaccine where you produce it yourself, but as a temporary holdover, whether to prevent COVID or to treat COVID, that would help people feel more comfortable going out of yeah. that house. So, so fingers crossed that this one works and, and you've seen it in the stock. Uh, but but clearly getting a little love from analysts, and, and that stock continues to go high. And it's extended over the entire biotech sector. So there is the, obviously the, the most acute uh, issue and a lot of the investment going toward COVID-related. But if you look at the XBIs, the equal-weighted you know, biotech, S&P biotech ETF, it's up 50% uh, off the lows and has really been a lesser-mentioned leadership group along with traditional tech. So it's, it's also risk appetite play. It's also a, hey, long-time horizon play because we're not worried about the economy and, the, you know, we're not looking for the economy to deliver much in the moment. So all that stuff does seem to fit together in favor of biotech at these levels, guys. Uh, Mike, watching the S&P leaders, Pent Air uh, doesn't happen a lot, but uh, up 6 <laughs> percent, the number one gainer. We, I don't think we would have mentioned this call otherwise, but B of A double upgrade to buy on what else but a strong season for swimming pools. Yeah. Uh, Pent Air is the largest U.S. pool distributor. And their, uh, their stay-at-home orders, I mean, it's, the, it's sort of the ultimate stay-at-home story, isn't it, uh, for those who have the luxury of having a pool in their backyard? Yeah, and I think, I mean, anecdotally, definitely heard about how, you know, uh, companies, local companies that dig pools are basically flat out. They can't, you know, they can't get to you this season, potentially, because people are deciding to redif- redirect investment there. I mean, Pentair is a name, though, where also benefits from uh, this catalyst, the analyst call, and it's also, you know, still down pretty handy year to date. So it uh, seems like it was uh, it was ripe to have people uh, rediscover it uh, at these uh, at these levels. Guys, I was just going to point out the S&P itself, 30, 3176. Uh, just for reference, the highs on Monday and on Friday around 3180. That's uh, kind of as high as we've gotten since early June when when we did make that push. So it seems like the market is uh, kind of trying to return to the the upper rail uh, of this trading range, at least in the uh, early going here, Carl. You know, you know, what's been interesting, guys, that a lot of people are talking about is that the stocks are rising along with gold, which which we do sometimes see happen when there's this big reflation or central bank stimulus. Uh, But it could also be maybe a warning sign that gold has been so well bid. It's trading, what, 80, 80 bucks off of its all time high in dollar terms. It's been a steady climb up. And the miners might find themselves right up there with the Internet, the Internet names and the cloud names as far as the sectors that are performing best in this kind of environment, whether it's some kind of bet on inflation later on, which is sort of picking up speed. And, and you've seen a little bit of some of the other industrial metals gain as well. Copper, iron ore, they've all been doing well. But, but gold is definitely catching people's eye up almost 20 percent so far this year. Yeah, I mean, I think you can you know, arguably just explain it as negative real interest rates. That's a tailwind for gold and for any non-yielding asset. There's a lot of other storylines, as you mentioned there, that, you know, get people comfortable. I mean, the the inflows into gold have been very, very strong. You could take that as a positive or negative. Sentiment is very hot uh, in gold right now for something that's, let's be honest, just made a round trip in nine years. So it's not as if it's kind of crashing up uh, toward new highs. But I do think um, there's a lot of storylines in in its favor. And yes, copper has actually been out 
outperforming it uh, in the last few weeks. I think, you know, whether it's saying anything about inflation, whether it's saying anything about the dollar long term, whether it's saying anything about, you know, central banks, whether they have or lost control of things, I think you have to go back to 2011 and say, what was gold at 1800 bucks an ounce in 2011 telling you that was worth listening to over the subsequent few years? And it's not clear to me that the macro message was something that helped you out very much. Could be different this time, but, but that's uh, just the reality of what we've seen in the last decade. RBC today says uh, 2000 before the end of the year. Uh, so that's something to note. Uh, Sarah, Walgreens is an interesting story. Two um, percent div hike, mm-hmm. uh, but they suspend the buyback. The buyback. They're cutting 4,000 jobs. They see full year adjusted EPS uh, below the street. COVID impact, 700 million, 750 million. One of the S&P losers today. And we'll, we'll, I mean, whether it's if it's the front of the store, that'll have interesting implications for names that you watch, like a Pepsi, which reports next week. Pepsi reports on Monday, and they actually have been more of a beneficiary of the stay-at-home trade relative to Coke, which has a bigger percentage of its business away from home in the restaurants and in the stadiums. They've that's sort of been the stay-at-home versus the reopening trade. Uh, so, so Pepsi you know, does well from the grocers. But the Walgreens note is interesting, and it also is interesting relative to Bed Bath & Beyond, which also showed weakness. Yes, this was a retailer that was very weak going into the crisis, but, but if any time that people needed to go to Bed Bath & Beyond and buy kitchen supplies because they were cooking at home or bathroom supplies because they were spending more time you know, looking at their homes and renovating and, and all of these trends that should have helped Bed Bath & Beyond, it didn't get it. The stock is down 18%. Yes, e-commerce grew, I think almost 100%, but overall sales down 50%. Uh, this has been a tough turnaround story and t- sort of a tough one for investors. It's interesting that it's closing 200 stores, and usually Wall Street would maybe might look favorably on such an announcement to close stores and get cost cuts and productivity gains. But like Levi's, which actually ended yesterday down 9%, also on announcing 15% of its workforce would be cut, it's just a sign that these retailers are in a really desperate position that they're cutting costs, closing stores, and laying off people. And that's not being interpreted as as a a shrink-to-grow kind of in this environment because there's no proof yet that they are going to be able to grow. No, exactly right. I mean, this is the time uh, of year when we'd normally be talking about how does back to school look? What are the companies maneuvering for for holiday? And it's almost irrelevant because you've basically gotten a lot of these old retailers have accelerated uh, their declines in all this. But they've been kind of cushioned by being able to raise debt and essentially uh, kind of keep it going for a while. But uh, it is really about, uh, you know, trying to shrink, especially if you have more than a thousand or so stores. It seems like the market puts those uh, those chains in a real penalty box because it's almost by definition too many. Uh, so it's it's a it's a tough one to see. The XRT is that equal way to retail uh, ETF, which kind of screens out to some degree the Amazon effect. And uh, it has not really you know, had any sustainable comeback uh, in the last few months since the lows. Carl, it also makes you wonder, we have to tally these names and put them on some kind of list. United Airlines, Levi, Walgreen, all announcing layoffs. If you look at today's unemployment claims number on layoffs, 1.3, it shows that it's moving in the right direction. It's still very elevated. And you do have this narrative out there that it will continue to improve into fall as states do reopen and businesses come back online. But with 18 million people still on continuing claims and, and companies announcing now during this quarter 
laying, that they're laying off people, you just wonder how much of that is already baked into the forecast and whether we could see a second wave of layoffs in this country as some of the stimulus programs wind down and some of these com- companies, especially in retail, take a close look at their businesses and try to scale back. Yeah, no, it's true. Uh, I mean, Walgreens is a cautionary tale this morning. Uh, we've been talking about the warn notice that United is sending out to their employees with a plan to cut as many as half of the frontline staff. And then today the Journal has an additional bit of color from a senior executive saying that they don't expect further government assistance uh, beyond that October 1st cliff. Uh, we'll talk uh, with the Treasury, Treasury Secretary about that in a moment. Uh, Mike, at the top of the next hour. But um, yeah, it sort of leads to what Rosengren told uh, the FT, and that is my expectation and fear is that we have community spread and that will be a problem for the economy. And then he went on to say that he thinks companies will begin to worry once again about the level of financing that they currently have. Yeah, that is the that's the question of, in a sense, the second wave of retrenchment, not necessarily uh, purely of the virus. And uh, that's been an open question. If you've been able to view the majority of, of unemployment as being somewhat temporary, that's coming into question now as all companies try to uh, cut costs and rationalize. I think we're going to hear a lot about that in earnings season coming up in the next couple of weeks. And then, yeah, on the financing side, uh, we've been bridged through this period. Uh, it does seem as if uh, companies have kind of created a little bit of a cushion, but it's not indefinite. And uh, and that is something. I mean, uh, Rosengren, you know, uh, we should probably make clear, he tends to think in these terms quite a bit uh, and sometimes raise alarms about things in the uh, the kind of capital raising side and, and, and sort of financial conditions uh, as being a, a potential yellow mm-hmm. light, but uh, worth uh, worth listening to, you know, nonetheless. And, and really also, by the way, echoes what, what Chair Powell has, has been emphasizing all along, which is there are more risks uh, than potential upside uh, opportunities that he wants to be prepared for in the months ahead. All that said, though, uh, NASDAQ and the NDX, once again, an all-time high. Let's get to Bob Bassani this morning. Hey, Bob. Good morning, Carl. Happy Thursday, everybody. Uh, it's a flattish open, but you're right. It's a somewhat depressingly familiar scenario here, uh, sort of like Groundhog Day, because once again, we're being dominated by technology stocks, as well as China, which has been on an absolute tear. That's MCHI at the top there. That's the main, the broadest China index to look at on a tear since Chinese authorities have been trying to jawbone the markets up in the last week. And succeeding. There's tech outperforming, but then you see everything else. Retail's not doing anything. Energy's not doing anything. The banks aren't doing anything. The KBE, the main bank ETF, went from 30 to 40, back to 30, essentially, in the last five or six weeks since the end of May. These inverted Vs that we see. Energy stocks, the same thing. The XLE, up, down, back down to where it was five or six weeks ago. Uh, So where are we right now? We're in the waiting part of the rally to figure out how the reopening is actually going. And again, we've been debating, is it a V, is it a W? This is the S&P 500 in the last two weeks. That, uh, excuse me, the last two months. That looks like a W to me, not a V. This is the waiting. We're trying to figure out exactly how the reopening is going. And the answer is, it's not entirely clear. And the market isn't entirely clear about what's going on. One thing that's very obvious is if just open up the hood of the market, it's glaringly clear where the market believes the winners are right now. Just take a look since June 1st. That's when we started that chart there. Uh, and technology's up 10%. What's happened to everything else? Industrials are up 1%. Consumer staples are, are flattish. Healthcare is down. 
Banks are down. Energy's down 7% here. It's not on there, but should be on there. Energy's down 7%. So this is a very wide dispersion in the returns. We've been talking about this. And if you look at the tech sector, there's remarkable uniformity. They, they have decided that mega cap stocks, semiconductor stocks, and software stocks are where the market wants to be. And look at this. Everything's up 11, 12%. In, these are subsectors of the technology groups here. So the, the market's made a very clear decision. Who's winning and losing? That's what we do here at CNBC. This is the horseways. We watch how sectors and individual companies are doing. The market has decided that the winner is tech, mega caps, semiconductors, and software companies. And the losers, at least right now, are small caps, value, and what we call cyclicals, which are energy stocks, bank stocks, and most industrials, although not all of them. Some are doing a little bit better than others. But that's a broad way of what the market's trying to figure out uh, as of right now. Finally, uh, Sarah was mentioning the, uh, China earlier, and there's a very interesting hearing going on today at the SEC. They're having a roundtable on emerging markets. Uh, it, it's actually about China. Uh, the SEC has been seeking a lot more transparency on the Chinese firms listing in the U.S. They can't get access to the audit information. They have been stymied by the, S by the regulators in China. When they go and say, we want to look at the audits of the Chinese companies listing in the U.S., the regulatory authorities in China will not allow them. This has been a problem for years, but it's getting a lot of traction now. Congress is getting into the act. The Senate passed a bill that has said if regulators can't see these uh, audits for three years, uh, then the issuer's securities could be banned from listing in the U.S. The bill's in the House now. Marco Rubio's getting involved. He wants to delist foreign companies that don't cooperate. Why is this happening? Well, it's been around for years, but it's getting traction because it's getting mixed in with all the trade and the COVID and the geopolitical tensions. So there's a potential financial issue, financial war on top of the trade war with China uh, that's going on. We are seeing some Chinese companies co-list over in Hong Kong, JD.com did. Uh, there's reports uh, that, uh, that Ant Financial may be listing in Hong Kong uh, as well. Uh, speculation is these are backstops in the event something goes wrong with U.S. listings in the United States. So, Carl, this is a, a very timely topic. It sounds a little bit nerdy, you know, uh, looking at uh, financial statements of companies listing in the United States from China, but it's very much mixed up in the trade tensions and the geopolitical issues with China. That hearing is going on. Right now, I'll monitor that, let you know if there's any news in that. Guys, back to you. All right. <laughs> Not nerdy at all, Bob. Thanks. Let's get to Rick Santelli this morning as well. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Carl. Even though we had our 14 drop in initial jobless claims and we were under expectations, both initial and continuing claims, as you look at a week-to-date of 10-year note yields, here we hover, basically at the lows of the week, hey, basically close to the lows of all time. Considering that 54 basis points, the low all-time every yield close, we're only hovering 10 basis points above it. It seems not to pay much attention outside of jobs reports, and that be that's because, for the most part, rates are considered managed, especially during the turmoil of the COVID effects. Now, let's go back to the 23rd of June for 10-year note yields. Why? Because that's the last time we settled outside of a range between 62 and 68 basis points. Today might be the 12th, but if you go back, you'll see the 23rd, we settled at 71 basis points, and it's been just steady and consolidating ever since. Now, let's consider March 11th, almost four months ago. There's a couple of markets comping back to that same date. Italian 10-year yields, right around 100, 120 basis points, is at the lowest yield in nearly four months, and that goes a long way to Christine Lagarde and the Eurozone trying, of course, to throw 
everything, including the kitchen sink, into their economy and having some success, at least in the eyes of the marketplace, as some of those southern economy rates have moderated. Another market that is at an extreme since the 11th of March, close to four months, is the value of the dollar against the Chinese currency. And one of the reasons may be, well, look at a year-to-day chart of the Shanghai Composite, because today is the eighth session in a row. It's closed higher. It, it's kind of pulling a NASDAQ on us, and it's coming at a time where investors, looking at some of the issues of the U.S. markets, are starting to sprinkle their investment dollars in the Eurozone and in China. Carl, back to you. All right, Rick. We'll see you a little bit later on. Uh, Rick Santelli, take a look at where we stand right now. Bob and Rick basically spelled it out for you, some underperformance uh, in the Dow and the S&P as the banks, energy, industrials underperformed down about a percent, although another all-time high on the NAS. We're back in a moment. About 20 minutes into trade, Dow's down 100. NASDAQ hits an intraday record high. The recovery for restaurants is being hindered by a resurgence of COVID cases all ahead of earnings season. Kate Rogers explains why this trend may only get worse and what we're expecting. Kate. Hey, Sarah. Good morning. Restaurant transaction data had been improving, but over the past two weeks, we've seen that trend reverse course. Data from the NPD group showed that overall transactions at major restaurant chains declined by 14% for the week ended June 28th compared to a year ago. Last week's report showed transactions had declined by 13%. Nationwide full-service restaurant transactions fell by 25%, while quick-service transactions declined by 13%. That makes sense because full-service, of course, is most aligned with with sitting down and eating in dining rooms, and we're seeing states either pause reopening or roll back some plans to reopen their dining rooms, and even major chains like McDonald's hitting pause on reopening plans for several weeks. States with the biggest declines in full-service transactions are Louisiana, South Carolina, Texas, North Carolina, Georgia, and Arizona, where cases are rising. Earnings season will kick off for the restaurants next week, but we have gotten some updates from major names. Most recently, Shake Shack, which said that same-store sales fell by 49 9% for the quarter ended June 24th. There's likely more pain to come for many companies this quarter. There are, though, a few outliers. The best performers in the space for the year so far have all been those with the most robust delivery and carryout systems. Papa John's, Domino's, Chipotle, and the best performer, Wingstop. All of this does make sense because our own CNBC and Change research polling among likely voters nationwide shows that only 38% actually feel comfortable going in and sitting down at a dine-in establishment at this point point in the outbreak. So you can understand why consumers are really turning to more names where they do have the delivery and carry out options. Sarah, back over to you. Yeah. And this and these are just the biggest chains in the country. Imagine how much pain is being felt at the smaller independent restaurants. That's right. Kate the Rogers, smaller Kate, businesses. Thank you. Exactly. Getting hit the hardest. Meantime, Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin is just moments away. We're also expecting some highly anticipated decisions from the Supreme Court around the top of the hour, including whether the president must disclose information about his taxes from his bankers. We'll be right back. Coming up next, a major addition to CNBC's primetime lineup. Shepard Smith will hit our airwaves this fall, and he joins us to talk about it in just a few minutes. Don't go away. Dow's still down about 100 points. Delta shares are falling this morning after a new memo from CEO Ed Bastian. Phil LeBeau has the details for us. Morning, Phil. 
Sarah, in this employee memo, Ed Bastian makes it clear that the rebound, the recovery in the airline business, it is slow in coming. And right now in July, they're flying just 30% of their schedule. In the memo, he addresses the fact that COVID-19 continues to weigh on passenger demand, writing the continued growth of the virus through the Sun Belt, coupled with the quarantine restrictions being implemented in large markets in the northern part of the country, give us renewed caution about further schedule additions at this time. Guys, we're hearing this from a number of executives. Do not expect to see big rebounds in scheduling in August and certainly not in September, October. That's when the airline business traditionally settles down. Delta shares down about 3% right now. Guys, back to you. Hey, Phil, just really quick. On the spectrum of airline executives who've been adding capacity, fair to say Bastion has been on the more cautious side to begin with? A little bit on the cautious side, but, you know, they said we're adding, and they are. They're adding 1,000 flights in the month of July, and I think that they were also going to add another 1,000 in August, or they were going to add some more flights in August, and then that was going to be it. Then they were going to cap it. Now this brings into question, and we'll get their earnings next week, and we'll talk with Ed at that time. Are they going to pull back on their August schedule? Because we saw that with United. United is being less ambitious than originally planned. All right, Phil, we'll watch that. Uh, Obviously, a lot of travel-related names under pressure once again today uh, are Phil LeBeau. Sarah, thanks. Uh, We'll talk to you. See you this afternoon. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Is America's primary system working? Is the Electoral College still the best process for electing a president? Could a third-party candidate ever be successful? In a new season of You Might Be Right, former Tennessee governors Bill Haslam and Phil Bredesen gather the country's top experts— to explore these issues and more as we approach the 2024 presidential election. Listen to You Might Be Right, a new podcast from the Baker School at the University of Tennessee, available now wherever you get your podcasts.